Traditional publishing or self-publishing? That's the big question. Today, our guest has a lot of experience with both sides of the business. Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, the podcast for writers, readers, and cooks. I'm Kate Leahy, and I'm here with Kristen Donnelly. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Kate. With our guest today, you've known him for a while now. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about how you guys know each other. So I met our guest today, Nick Falchild, way, way back, more than a decade ago. Uh, We were editors together at Food and Wine Magazine. I was, I think, an editorial assistant or an assistant editor. Nick was a more senior editor. So he came in. He had a ton of experience with magazines and He was the kind of guy who like always knew what was cool. He was really good at trend spotting. And when he left Food and Wine, he actually became the founding editor of Tasting Table. And then he created Short Stack Editions. And he's co-authored so many cookbooks, including three books from Cocktail Company, Death and Company. So I want to know when you were at Food and Wine together, like, was he the guy you would, you know, you'd go to for cocktail recommendations, restaurant recommendations, or how did you guys work together? I definitely remember like meeting in each other's spaces to chat through of that kind of stuff. But there was also a test kitchen on site. So it was a really collaborative environment where we were like always tasting food and chatting. So then he goes on and he's done so many different types of projects in book publishing. And so that's what's the really interesting thing. It's kind of like he's doing this money ball thing, like he's just gonna do a lot of things and see what sticks. And he's not afraid of experimentation. So I think we can pick his brain today about all the things he's learned. And some of the sort of maybe things that he would recommend somebody who wants to do publishing in a different rate, maybe go your own road. Um, Maybe he can give us some advice on whether it's worth it. Yeah, there are so many lessons that he'll be able to share from not necessarily mistakes he made, um, but just things he's tried that maybe didn't work out and what has worked out. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. This will be our reality check. So if (laughs) self-publishing is for you, maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe we'll know a little bit more after this talk with Nick. Hi, Nick. Welcome to Everything Cookbooks. Kristen and I have so many burning questions to ask you all about traditional publishing, self-publishing. But, you know, before we get into it, um, I kind of want to know what you call yourself because you've both worked as a co-author, you've worked as a publisher, you've worked as a consultant. How do you define your career? What are you just sort of like a multiple, (laughs) what do they call them? Slashies where you have so many different (laughs) multi-passionate, (laughs) multi-hyphenate. Nope. Um, I think it just depends on on who I'm talking to and, and what kind of work we're talking about there's a lot of times i'm an author a co-author sometimes i'm I'm an editor sometimes i'm a publisher and then kind of outside of the the book publishing world i do a lot of consulting how did you get your foot in the door with cookbooks specifically because i know you've had you had a career in journalism mm-hmm. print journalism online journalism so where where did cookbooks start to sort of pique your interest i think working in magazines is what gave me the interest in in working in cookbooks they're not too dissimilar. I mean, you have paper, photos, <laughs> you have layouts, you have to fit things. You know, so there's an artistic side of it too. That's really fun. I love the limitations of a book or a magazine. So Kristen and I worked together at my last magazine job, which is Food and Wine. I left that job to start an online publication. This was September 2008. Ooh. We launched that publication, yeah, day before the stock market crash. 
that was just lucky timing. Um, I wasn't leaving <laughs> magazine publishing because I thought, you know, things were going to change or go south. But that's what happened. You probably saved my job. <laughs> <laughs> by leaving. Uh, Thank you, Nick. I never I thought about it. I saved my own way. job by leaving. <laughs> yeah. So I was working online, um, starting this company called Tasting Table for three or four years. And I really missed working with something tangible, books, magazines, whatnot. Mm. And so my left tasting table, the thing I wanted to get into most was cookbooks. And ironically, it was the same time, around the same time that the iPad had been released, the first iPad. And so there was a lot of excitement around digital cookbooks and what you could do with this new device. And so I kind of split my time between writing books for traditional publishers, print books, and then kind of exploring what all this new technology would do, which turns out is, is not much in terms of how it impacts our, our lives, at least not back then. Um, we didn't stop buying cookbooks in their physical form. We just kind of started using the internet more to find recipes and not much happened in the digital tablet sort of publishing space for a while. I actually forgot about that. But in the end, yeah, it is funny how what a blip that was, because I remember a lot of people were excited and you were one of them and really experimental. Yeah, I worked on some really cool projects. None of them were successful. Yeah. But mm. um, some really, really cool stuff that was, you know, the intersection of technology and, and recipes, but no one wanted to pay for that. No one still wants to pay for that stuff. Like Mike Salomonov, wasn't he one of them? We had started down that path. That was funny because that was going to be a self-published project. His first cookbook, <gasps> we had, we'd started down this path of like publishing both like physical and digital versions of a cookbook and the digital book was going to essentially be a documentary about Israeli food. We did some preliminary production work on it and then looked at what all this was going to cost to make. And I think Mike realized, hey, instead of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to make this stuff, someone will pay me that amount of money and then deal with all of the uh, sales and distribution. So let's go that way instead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We got we got we definitely have to get into the self-publishing versus traditional publishing. It's going to be juicy. I know. I, I do want to know, like, what was the first big co-authoring project for you? First book I ever wrote was the first Death and Company book. Yeah. You've done three books with them, right? Yeah. Roughly yeah. every three years, we do another one. That's cool. How do you get partnered with authors? It happens a few different ways. Death and Company, I knew the guys at the bar because I was writing a lot about cocktails leading up to that. So I knew some or most of, of the staff there. And when it came time for them to, to look for an author, I think I was one of the, the few names that few folks had met with them. From then on, I think it's been mostly projects come through my agent. You know, half the time it's folks that he already represents, like chefs or whatnot. Uh, and the other half of the time, you know, a project comes up from a publisher or a prospective client and he plays matchmaker. And how do you know when it's the right fit? For me, I've never tried to make this part of my work the main source of income. It's too unpredictable, too scary, too up and down. So I look at projects mostly out of, I guess, curiosity. I mean, obviously it has to feel like I'm getting paid somewhat fairly for my time. But if the project is going to teach me something, it's going to be really fun to work on. If I feel like I'm going to learn through the process, that's what drives me to it. So I tend to I tend to go after things that I'm very underqualified for, if that makes any sense. <laughs> it probably doesn't make me the, the, the ideal candidate. How do you mean underqualified? A style of cooking or subject matter that I don't feel like I, I know a ton about and that this project will really help me learn. That makes sense. But then you're also bringing that beginner's mind. and I think beginner's mind is, is a great resource 
for co-authors. I know I heard JJ talk about this a lot on his podcast because he doesn't consider himself like a masterful home cook, even though he's a very good cook, very much undersells his, his skills. But that's also kind of one thing that works for him too, is that, you know, willful ignorance or curiosity that you can bring to it. And I, I very much feel the same way. And somewhere in here, you created the beloved short stack editions. Which, you know, is a self-published project pretty much in its purest yeah, form. Right. Just one that we were able to kind of turn into an ongoing business for a few years, at least. How did it come about? So in that in that window of time I was talking about, that was sort of post-tasting table. So we're talking 2011, 12, 13, around there. I was spending a lot of my time working on these apps and other digital projects for the iPad, for phones and whatnot. So I'd say 80% of my work time was developing these, these digital things. What I'd found is it was not nearly as satisfying work as I'd been used to in, in publishing, even in digital media. I, I just found myself longing to work with some paper again. I love having a proof in my hand, whether it's a magazine or a book or whatever. I'm just kind of longing for that that process. And my partner, Caitlin Golan, who I was working on a lot of these projects with and who I'd worked, essentially started Tasting Table with. She was there from the beginning. We both were kind of feeling the same thing. And so we started talking about what can we make that's in a approachable book format, something that we could make ourselves. And we had both started working with, you know, in, in the traditional publishing industry as well as co-authors. And so we kind of saw what works and what doesn't work about that process and tried to come up with a project that would scratch that itch that we had felt from being gone from magazines for a few years. And that's how it came up with Short Stack. For those who maybe haven't seen it, how would you describe Short Stack? I know, Kristen, you worked on one of the, the subjects. Kristen wrote a cauliflower book for us. So they were yeah. single subject cookbooks, really inspired by the pamphlets that food brands would create back in you know the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. These small pamphlet size recipe booklets you usually give away for free or sell at the grocery store aisle. I was always obsessed with that format, just thought it was really cool and kind of had disappeared over the years. And I also like cookbooks that help you decide what to cook with a specific ingredient, which is not that common in the US. A lot more common in Europe. We saw a lot of single subject cookbooks in the European publishing industry, but there weren't many here. So we launched the company via Kickstarter, which you know back in, hmm. I think that was 2012, was still kind of a novel thing and a little bit newsworthy in itself that someone was fundraising a cookbook or a series of cookbooks on Kickstarter. Now it's been done a million times. So we were able to get you know some good traction that way and really fund the, the launch of it pretty successfully. So that's, that's how it all started. What did I learn through the whole process? Publishing's really hard. I learned I loved the <laughs> production piece of it, finding printers, choosing paper, dealing with the minutia of, you know, getting something from a digital file to the book that is in your hands. I learned I hate the distribution, sales and distribution piece of publishing and like to avoid that at any cost. But we were forced to do that for short, with short stack too. We, for at least the first, what, two or three years of its existence, we did all of our sales and distribution ourselves. Kristen, you know that well, because we used to share an office in Williamsburg with you and your lip balm company. And um, yes. what the office was, 
it was an old janitor's closet. So yeah, you, you were in the middle of our sales and distribution. In a creepy hallway. Yes. We, we, sh- <laughs> we shipped our stuff from the same office. <laughs> well, that's what's so amazing, though, is that you liked the minutiae of all the production side, because I could see a lot of authors listening right now thinking, oh, man, there's no way I'd want to think of the production side. It's hard enough to actually get the words down and get the photography done. That's what I loved about publishing, too. That's what I loved about working mm. in a magazine was like seeing something through the layout process or being on a photo shoot or just getting your hands in as many steps of the process as possible. Usually in magazines, you weren't welcomed into every step of the process because everyone had their duties. But um, sometimes you could hang around while things were getting done. When we were putting a magazine to bed, I loved sitting with copy editors or designers and just putting those last few touches together. That's my happy place. Yeah, and like trimming to fit. Yeah, it's the best. And that's what I loved about Short Stack because the person I was doing that with is now my wife. My wife, Rotem, designed all all of the books, did all the art direction for them. Caitlin and I had just started kind of piecing together this concept when I met my wife. And um, so she was really implemental in the look and feel and sort of the overall direction of the thing. But we were doing that work, you know, together late at night at home, shoulder to shoulder in front of a computer for years. The only thing that really stopped us was we had a kid and um, we didn't have that time anymore to do it. Yeah. I mean, it is cool, too, with Short Stack because it was kind of like a periodical. I mean, it was this combination of both book and periodical yeah. because it came out, what, every two months? We wanted to leverage the the sort of periodical magazine sales model so that it was easier to get placed in stores, but also make each issue more timeless like a cookbook, right? I mean, in our books really okay. didn't have anything that timely in them. It was ingredients and you know recipes about a specific ingredient. So uh, that worked because now, I mean, the books are still being sold. And they're still in circulation. We just stopped publishing new ones a few years ago. Ironically, around the time I started up another publishing company that was sort of a, it was kind of self-publishing because it was a very small team of just uh, two or three of us. But we were also pretending to be a, a larger publishing company when it came to um, distribution and sales. Mm-hmm. So we were sort of a hybrid publisher. What company is that? It's called Dovetail. So that was a publishing arm of a product, um, like kitchen and bar product design company. They had started their company by self-publishing a, a cocktail book and creating a cocktail shaker and selling those two products together into a bunch of mostly specialty retailers. I came in to take that approach and apply it to books, mostly in the food and beverage space, but also kind of more just like general lifestyle books on health and fitness and would develop products to go alongside them. That's kind of like what Weldon Owen did for years with William Sonoma. I don't know if they still do, but it would be like, okay, we've got a spiralizer. Spiralizers are selling. Now we want a little book, not that big, something yep. that's $15 or so, and it's sold right next to the spiralizer. You know, both sell really well, but it's not something that like will be on the New York Times bestseller list. But who knows? The volume that you can move with some of those things is probably pretty high. That just kind of stays under the radar. It can be incredibly high because one order from a Target, you know, a, a big box retailer, it could be 50,000 books. Wow. Yeah, wow. That's awesome. Wow. And you don't know until you get that one single giant order. So it was it was really interesting. It was very much an experiment in the publishing business model and distribution and even production. We were trying to fast publish books six months or less from idea through book in hand. So we'd come up wow. with an idea for a cookbook and then find someone to author it, shoot it in-house, print it domestically. It would be in stores, you know, five or six months later. That's incredible. 
That is so fast. It wasn't easy. It, it did yeah. definitely throw, throw up guardrails too. Like we, we couldn't publish giant encyclopedic cookbooks. We couldn't publish anything that was, you know, a 200,000 word manuscript. Our books were on the lighter side in terms of the, the depth and breadth of their content. But we were making books, cookbooks and whatnot that would look pretty much like anything else on the on the shelf at the store, just doing it really quickly. And being able to capitalize on trends, because that's one thing that's really hard to capitalize on a trend since it takes about two years for an average book to get out to market, say, maybe longer, that maybe you're writing to a trend. That trend is, is obsolete if, by the time your book comes out. Exactly. And that's what we were doing. We were starting with trends. Yeah. This is a trend. Mm-hmm. This would make a great book. Who's the person to write that book? And I kept going back to magazine writers, people I'd either worked with in publishing or knew of through magazines because they're used to turning around a story in a couple of weeks. And what we were asking them to do with a manuscript was a long feature story, 10,000 words, let's say. It made sense to people who were more used to writing long-form journalism or long-form magazine pieces than someone who you know, writes a book a year or two books a year. And then you ask them, can you do this in in three weeks? Can you do it in four weeks? And, you know, they think you're insane. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's still a little insane if they're doing all the recipe development, testing, et cetera. Yeah, of course. The recipe (laughs) development you can't do in that time. But I'm talking about books that were, you know, not recipe uh, dependent, but things that were more just nonfiction, you know, how-to books or whatever. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me ask you about At Home with Gavin Kaysen. This was a self-publishing book. Did that come out just last year? It came out in October. October 22. So like, Gavin Kaysen is an incredible chef. He owns several restaurants in the Minneapolis area. Um, I remember when Gavin was at Cafe Baloo uh, yeah. back in the day. He's an amazing guy, just really charismatic. And I'm sure was approached several times through his career for, hey, I'm an agent. I want to publish your book. Like, do you have a book in you? So how did you guys get together? and Why the self-publishing route for Gavin? I've known Gavin for a long time. We grew up, I mean, we didn't know each other as kids, but we definitely played sports against each other in high school. Wow. But I met him, I think, through Food and Wine when he was a chef at a golf course in California. I just started working at Food and Wine, and he was one of our best new chefs that year. I met him out there, and we stayed in touch over the years because we were both Minnesota boys. Uh, He moved back to the Twin Cities several years before I did. When I moved back here a few years ago, uh, we just you know, reconnected. I remember he told me at the time that he had a a book deal and he was starting to work on a cookbook. And then we didn't talk about cookbooks again for, I guess, in another you know year or two. And once the pandemic hit and we were in lockdown, I think he reached out. I can't remember how the conversation was, was picked back up. He's like, you know, I decided ultimately not to do this, this book with the publisher. Wasn't the right time, wasn't the right direction. I don't, I don't know exactly what, what led to him deciding not to do it. But he said, you know, I've been doing these virtual cooking classes for a few weeks and each one is just more successful than the last and like hundreds of people are showing up to these Zoom classes that I'm, you know, basically doing in my house. He's like, is there anything we could do with this? So we started talking about a cookbook that would sort of lean into that idea of cooking his style of food at home. We had a lot of content through the classes that had been filmed and the recipes that had been developed and actually sort of crowd tested because, you know, 
hundreds of people were making these recipes and sending their feedback or asking questions. So it was kind of a cool way to get a lot of feedback on recipes for a cookbook that I hadn't run into before. So I, I ran them through the same kind of questions that I run everyone through who reaches out and says, I want to publish a cookbook. I usually 99 out of 100 times, they talk them out of it. Right. That's, I think you said that in the interview on um, Stained Pages when you talk about um, writing the book with Gavin, the Q&A with, with Paula Forbes. And I think you said, let's say 30 people that I talk to who are interested in self-publishing, 29 of them, I talk out of it. <laughs> Or let's say 99 out of 100. I mean, that is strong word. So talk us out of it. Why should we not self-publish? This happens, let's say, a couple times a month. Someone gets my name from somebody or emails me and they say, I want to to publish a cookbook. I want to publish my own book. I get a lot of other random like nonfiction projects. And I will talk to anyone who is interested in it because I think just the fact that you want to write and potentially publish a book is a really important thing, even if, if, if it never happens, or even if you just do it for yourself, like what an achievement to sit down and, and write something and to put yourself out there. So I'll, I'll literally talk to anyone about it, but it's almost always making sure they know what amount of work is ahead of them, uh, making sure they understand the cost if they're going to be printing books and hiring people to photograph or design or edit their stuff, just kind of give them a sense, general sense of what this whole thing is going to cost them. and then. Even if we make it through like that part of the conversation, they have the wherewithal, they have the money, they have the resources and the drive to do it. And then we talk about distribution and that's usually where things fall apart. Like, how are you going to sell these books? Where are you going to sell them? Here's how book distribution works for traditional publishers. And it's really hard to break into that system as an indie or self-published person. So what are you going to do? You're going to start a website? and drive people that way. Like, who's your audience? How much reach do you have? How many books do you think you can sell? And then that's kind of where it falls apart. With Gavin and with, you know, some other chefs I've worked with or other brands I've worked with, they have that piece of the distribution already. Gavin had a lot of people coming to his website to sign up for these classes. He had a partnership with William Sonoma to promote these classes. Um, he had par- ah. partnerships with other brands. Yeah. So he's part of that, that William Sonoma ecosystem. Right, yeah. Even before we decided to really move forward with the project, I had put together a PNL. We talked to other folks who had self-published. He talked to Nick Kakonis about his experiences with, you know, the Alinea and Aviary books we definitely did the the due diligence to make sure we could make this business model work for us, for him specifically. And it did on paper. And then the last thing that kind of gave us the confidence to go and, and make the investment was we asked William Sonoma, you know, would you essentially guarantee an order of this magnitude? And they said, sure. So we, we knew we had certain number of books, you know, pre-sold to William Sonoma. That was a thousand books that were pre-sold? I think it was. I think the first order was a thousand. So it's not much. It's not nothing, but it's enough to know that our break-even point for Gavin's book was around 3,000 copies to recoup the cost of printing, the cost of photography and all the labor that went into it. It was only about 3,000 copies we needed to sell in order to break even. When you're talking about cost in self-publishing, is it sort of 50% goes into producing distribution, 50% goes into photography, editing, design? What, what's, the, what's the breakout? It really varies by project. Depends. So depending on what kind of talent you need to pay for. Are you paying a co-author? Are you paying a designer? Are you paying a photographer, recipe tester, all that stuff? So some of that work... Gavin was was able to provide through you know his company his business. I wrote the book and acted as publisher and I guess technically editor too. We had a really great copy editor. My wife again designed it, 
So she was the book designer slash art director. So she kind of wore a couple hats. She would produce our photo shoots and do all the props and stuff for that. And so, yeah, it was oh. a, a really interesting division of labor. It was a small team of just a few of us. So that's a, I think that's a case where we maybe weren't spending quite as much on, you know, sort of freelance contract labor. Yeah. Some books I've worked on, it's everyone, you know, is getting paid and, and you want to pay people well, knowing that there's not going to be anything really on the back end. There's no royalties. There's no anything that the person who puts the money up to publish the book is, is usually the one who's going to keep any profits from it. You have to remember too, something I wasn't thinking about with self-publishing is, you know, you see a book that's 30 bucks on the shelf, but to sell that into a store, you still need to make money, you know? So then your cost per book needs to be quite low. I mean, at least for the printing. Right. And if you do the math, you have to print a lot of books to get that cost per book low. I mean, printing right. is, is one of the big barriers to self-publishing. It's hard to find a printer who will work with you if you're writing your own book. Well, one, because you're not going to be printing the volumes that most of their clients want. You'll be printing hundreds or a few thousand versus tens of thousands. What printer is going to bother with you? But even if you do find a printer who will work with you, the upfront costs of printing are pretty high. There's usually a setup fee that gets spread out over many thousands of copies of books. But if you're only printing a few hundred, you know, they absorb that setup fee. And so your cost per book can be insane. And you really need to be printing like thousands. I say 3000 is usually the baseline. Yeah. That's when you can start making the financials start to make sense. And that's for like what we would consider your normal cookbook, hardcover, eight by 10 ish color photography, all that stuff. A, a book that's going to look like most conventional cookbooks, probably 3,000 copies and up is where you can make it work. But 3,000 copies is also going to cost you a significant amount of money. And then you have to store it. Yep. I was just thinking garage, you know, <laughs> and then it. when uh, you get the orders lot, in, yeah. <laughs> who's who's shipping it out? You are, if not working with a distributor. So the, the books that have made sense to me in the past or for clients or for people who are just curious about it, they always have some kind of way to store and distribute their stuff. Usually they own a brand that they're selling products anyway, or they have friends in the publishing industry who can help them. With Gavin, we, we actually lucked out. We had a couple of fulfillment distribution partners fall through. And at the last minute, someone who you know was a, a frequent diner at a guest at his restaurants mentioned that he has a, a small publishing company here in the Twin Cities and they do all their own fulfillment. And we were like, great, would you warehouse and, and ship our book? And they said, sure. And it wow. costs you know less than your normal 3PL. So we very much lucked out. And are they actually selling it into the bookshops too? Or No, I mean, the, all the retail business has kind of just organically come our way. And, and mostly, you know, oh, okay. local stores, stores that Gavin's chef friends have, you know, that kind of thing. It's been very organic. For now, it's the direct-to-consumer sales and then a few key accounts and purchases has really made it successful enough. We just reprinted another uh, big batch of books. Oh, great. That's got to be very cool. satisfying because when you're in every single step of the process, getting that extra order, it's just much more satisfying than when you see, say, you're traditionally published and you see maybe your Amazon ranking go up. That's satisfying too, but it's just like you're seeing the numbers, the real numbers, not sort of like, well, if I get this percentage <laughs> of the royalties, maybe I'm making a dollar on each of those books, you know, like that kind uh, of yeah, I try not to think to look at those things. Um, That's smart. Books that I've written yeah. for other publishers, because at the end of the day, it almost never impacts you. 
And so when you're talking to people and, you know, 99 out of 100 say, okay, this isn't for me, what kind of numbers are you throwing out there just in terms of like, I'm feeling like right now I sort of need to be, you need to have a lot of money to make a little money doing a self-published book. It's like what the old saying about owning a winery, you need to be rich already to have the winery to be able to produce the wine. Yep. I completely agree. Yeah. And so it's most often a financial thing. Like, are you ready to spend fifty to a hundred thousand or more to get some books into your hands? And that's a pretty modest estimate. And you can definitely spend more than that if you want. You can also be extremely scrappy about it, but I think it's hard to be scrappy about the last few steps of the process, which is the printing. You know, it, it is what it is. It costs what it costs. And when we're talking about cookbooks specifically, you want to have a beautiful object, right? You want to have photography. You want to have something that's laid out nicely. You're not writing a memoir. You're not writing fiction. You're not writing something that's just black ink on white paper, which you can print on demand. But until someone invents a machine that prints really beautiful cookbooks on demand, um, this is what we're going to be dealing with pretty much every time. Have you seen any print-on-demand services that you like? Nothing good, no. Hmm. I think there are some now, and I really don't track it much anymore. There are some now I think that will do, you know, color, four color printing and all that. It's either extremely expensive, thirty, forty, fifty dollars a copy to to print that, mm. or it's the quality's still not there. Mm. Are there any other lower cost options for somebody who maybe does just want to print, you know, a couple hundred copies and not spend an arm and a leg or Yeah, if you are not trying to resell your book, uh, if you just want something you can hold in your hands and share with some friends and family. I will send people to your basic online print shop, youprinting.com, places like that. Um, there's also some some small format sort of notebook publishers out there. Uh, Scout Books is one that I've sent a ton of people to. And you'll see a lot of self-published Scout Books in bookstores even or, or online. But they basically work in a couple of fixed formats. And they send you a, a template and you load it up with your book. You can put photos in them. It's a really easy way. It's really cheap for folks whose goal is just to get something out there. That's a cheap way to do it. That sounds like a good option for somebody who maybe wants to just sell like direct to consumer even too. Like if you print a few hundred copies and you want to have a little booklet pamphlet type thing of recipes. Yeah. Especially if photography is not a big part of your project. If it is, then you kind of need a larger trim size. But you can go to any on-demand printer that prints, you know, brochures and business cards and stuff. And you can usually find something that will look and feel like a cookbook, even if it's not a hardcover 8x11 large format book. Good tip. What are the potential upsides for going the sort of indie route or the self-published route? Mm -hmm. For me, the upside, the biggest upside is the creative freedom, autonomy, the ability to make decisions get the book that exactly that you want out there. I think with Gavin, we were very much on the same page about that. Our book is not that unconventional, but I'm pretty sure if we had published this with a traditional publisher, there are certain things we wouldn't have had a chance to do. I work with a lot of publishers, so I'm not biting any hands here, but it can be frustrating sometimes and you don't always get your way with publishers, right? And if you do get your way, often it comes at the end of a very long, painful fight or negotiation. So for me, it's <laughs> the fun part about self-publishing is... Um, Citing your having, own cover. Yeah, exactly. You yes. hit the nail on the head. It's, it's, that's a big piece of it. Uh, your own title. Yeah. Gavin's cookbook does not have a subtitle. Imagine that getting through oh, uh, traditional no, publishing. It would not get through. Process. Yeah, it wouldn't. Yeah. 
No, it would have a paragraph long subtitle. You know, <laughs> that, those things, the little challenges that come with traditional publishing. For me, that's what I get out of it. There's obviously financial advantages, especially if you're the person who's who's paying for everything, who's also reaping the benefit, you know, the the net benefits of what you sell. Like I said, we we broke even. Gavin broke even at around three thousand copies. We've sold many more than that, and all of those profits are his. So that's a good financial investment for him. And just to go into that a little bit more, it's so if he hits that 3000 mark in sales and now everything he sells after that is gravy. So if it's, um, is the book $35? $35. Yeah. $35. So yeah. instead of like in a traditional deal, A, he wouldn't have earned out by selling that many. He'd have to mm-hmm. sell 20, 25, I don't know, thousand mm-hmm. copies before yeah. you break even on your advance. And then after that, you're getting, say, a couple dollars on every book you sell. So this way, instead, he's getting a higher percentage of every book. Is that kind of so you sell 10,000 copies as a self-published author, you come out ahead. Yeah, let's say it costs us $10 a book now to to print and ship and all that stuff. Um, Everything on top of that, if he's selling direct to consumer, that's $25 in profit. If we're selling wholesale, that's half of that. But still, it's it's profit. So it can be good business. I don't I've never known anyone to, um, at least with cookbooks to, you know, just completely kill it with one self-published book, maybe modernist yeah. cuisine, if, if you consider that a self-publishing project. Right. Well, do you? <laughs> I do. The first series of books, the first set of six books, which because of their breadth and depth and cost was made a big splash in the media around the time and the fact that it was self-published. But you know, there's a whole team of people funded by a billionaire, multi-hundred millionaire, uh, you know, it was came from a, very, a, a place of privilege. That actually, though, gave me the, I guess, the confidence or a little bit of courage to do the first book that I helped someone self-publish, which was our friend Lior, who owns Le Bois Spice Company in New York. He wanted to, to publish a book where all the recipes called for his own proprietary spice blends, which is a challenge with traditional publishing because they, they don't really want you to use you know, specific branded products in recipes, uh, at least not if they're your own, your own products that you make. It's not right. really, at least at the time, what, you know, legacy publishers were doing. So that gave us the, the creative freedom to, to use his, to call for his spice blends, to not give up his sort of secret house recipes. But I had no idea where to, how to get a book printed. Uh, when I signed on, again, this was a learning experience for me. So uh, I figured I figured it out. And then Modernist Cuisine came out and I got a copy and I looked to see where they printed that book because I knew they had self-published it. And it was uh, a printer in China, went to their website, wrote them an email, asked them if they would print my book. And they said yes. And that's literally how we found our printer for um, smart. Wow. For <laughs> so book. smart. Yeah. I mean, is it that easy anymore? Let's say it wasn't easy all the way through. We still had to like deal with the logistics of printing a book in China, yeah. right? So there's a lot of communication that needs to be done. There's language barriers, time barriers. There's uh, a lot of shipping hurdles you need to jump through. But um, we were kind of lucky in that way. And I guess you're printing enough copies to make it worth their while. No, we, we were definitely printing enough to make it worth their while. I think, I think the success of Modernist Cuisine kind of made them think that like other American chefs would be calling. And so they probably thought uh, maybe we were like more important than, than we were. Um, but the book, you know, <laughs> he's still, I think he's still printing and, and selling copies of the book. He ended up doing a more traditional spice cookbook with, I believe it's Clarkson Potter a few years later. But I think this was a good, a good test run for that. 
for me, I learned a lot about cookbook publishing because that was the first thing I ever published. That does sometimes happen where somebody will self-publish a book and then like sell through that first print run. And then as mm -hmm. they're deciding whether or not to reprint, they'll end up working with a traditional publisher, basically selling it over just so they can get the distribution and printing off their uh, off their plates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Kate, you mentioned intellectual property. I mean, there's definitely that value to it as well. And, and it does happen, especially if you can prove that your book was you know successful on a very DIY level, a publisher is going to see the opportunity to scale up distribution. We talked a little bit about Kickstarter early on. Mm -hmm. What's the status of Kickstarter now if you're doing a cookbook? Do, can it still work? I feel like Kickstarter is no longer newsworthy. It, remember when it was really cool that someone had crowdfunded something? And it wasn't just books, but like any kind of project. And you kind of love the grassroots angle to that. And it was, you know, often written about in the media. Like we, New York Times did a story on our short stack Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. that's It was so strange. Strange at the time. Uh, I don't think that will ever happen again. I, mean, I don't think Kickstarter is newsworthy anymore, but that definitely impacted our, our campaign. We were funded pretty quickly after that. So I don't think it's a great tool anymore. I really don't. I haven't seen many examples of folks successfully funding a book. And you got to remember how much of those funds are going to back to Kickstarter or to your, your payment processing platform, which is usually Amazon, right? I mean, I always tell people 10%, like take 10% off the top of whatever you're raising. That's just going to be the fees. And then there's taxes. And then the money has to go to people have been, they're not giving you money. They're not your patrons. They're buying something from you. They're pre-ordering something from you. That's what most successful Kickstarter campaigns are, pre-selling a book or a widget. So really hard to make the economics work. And then just looking at how much money, you know, how much total funding uh, book projects are bringing in these days, it's definitely not going up. It's gone down. Um, I think our friend Emily Thielen's Paula Wolfert cookbook is one of the, still one of the most successful fundraising campaigns on Kickstarter. And I think that book is eight, nine years old probably now. Right. And a traditional publisher picked it up because yeah. it was so newsworthy. Yeah. Yeah. For something like Kickstarter, you basically need a large audience or reach. But then if you have you that, then why right. wouldn't you need to have it? Like, why wouldn't yeah. you go to a traditional publisher? You know, exactly. Right. It, it seems that what I've seen is that if you don't need all the bells and whistles that come with a cookbook, if you don't need that, that beautiful photography and that specific design that makes all the recipes, photography stories work together, if you're writing a memoir and you can do black and white print on demand. That seems like a much easier way to go with with uh, indie publishing or self publishing than it does doing the doing a full on traditional yeah. cookbook. Right, and I think that's why we've we're seeing a rise in these companies that are sort of in between self publishing world and legacy publishing hybrid publishers. I think they can take many different forms. There's still some level of gatekeeping, right? They're not just taking on any project, but they're able to provide some of the support that traditional publishers support, especially distribution. Yeah. So now that we've we've gone, we've talked about how hard it is, how how stressful it can be, but also the upside of like you get that creative control. So I, I don't know, uh, Kristen, are you in the ninety nine the ninety nine percent of people who <laughs> are just like, no thanks, not for me? Or are you that one person that one person who's like, actually, I mean, for me personally. No, but, you know, I would co-author with somebody who was ready for that, for sure. Keep in mind what you're signing yourself yeah. up for. I'm not talking to you specifically, but anyone who's right. thinking about helping someone else publish something or co-authoring a book with someone who's planning to self-publish, just keep in mind that there is no backstop for you. There's not a publisher who can handle any issues that come up. 
or that's true. The buck's going to stop, you know, with, with you, uh, most likely. And so I'm used to writing a book, sending it off or, you know, finishing up edits, proofs, and then never thinking about it again, never stressing out about missing something, needing to change something, anything going wrong with the printing. Like it's at completely out of my hands, out of my mind. The second that book is off to the printer and the opposite uh, is true with anything I've self-published. It could be 10 years later and still something could come up that you have to deal with. I've had fires to put out uh, and they're not I guess fun. it depends on your role though. I mean, if you're literally doing just like you're hired to be an author, like you're dealing with... That, I guess that's, I should have made a stronger point. If you are signing up to co-author a book, make sure you're not also becoming the de facto publisher or editor or any role that you don't want because there's no one else there to do it. Be clear about your role. Yeah, yeah. Be oh, very yeah. clear about your role. Yeah. And hire a an amazing copy editor. Invest in copy editors. Yep. They will always pay for themselves a thousand times over. Absolutely. Everyone loves a good copy editor. They save us from ourselves. <laughs> Any uh, final words for people who are thinking, you know, I'm curious about self-publishing. Um, I really would maybe want to try it out. Why do you want to do it? Is this for you or is this for everyone? Are you doing this to feel like you've accomplished something? Is it a project that's going to give you a lot of satisfaction yourself because you did it? Or do you really feel like there's a huge audience that needs to hear what you want to say or, or cook what, you, what recipes you want to publish? The folks who show up in my inbox who are interested in self-publishing, I can almost immediately divide them into a few different buckets. One is, I'm an amazing cook. The world deserves to experience my genius. And maybe that's true, but more often than not, it's not. They are probably an amazing cook and their friends and family tell them, hey, you should write a cookbook. And they take that really seriously. They take that feedback extremely seriously. I can't think of any examples of someone who was a star at the potluck, um, who now is like a successful cookbook author just because of that. Yeah, not everybody is Emily Meggett. I will say that she's the author of the Gullah Geechee home cooking book. I would say an exception. Right. Um, the other bucket is my grandma was an amazing cook. So someone wants to, you know, honor uh, someone close to them and their genius. Those books sometimes, you know, are successful. And then the third bucket is usually, I, you know, I am a professional chef or cook or whatever, food media personality, and publishers just don't get me. And so they're looking for uh, a more indie, you know, it's like working with a studio versus a, an indie film production company. So it's one of those three buckets. And I think just figuring out which of those three buckets you're in, uh, and if you're not in any of them, then who are you? What is driving this project? Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work. Not guaranteed you're going to make any money. A good goal is to break even. So I guess that's the quick witness test. Are you okay putting all this work in, uh, walking away and, and breaking even, or maybe even losing a little money? And if you are, then great, go for it. That is a really smart way to frame it. Don't go into this thinking it's a money-making endeavor. Think of it as a, a project that um, you got to do because you just have to do it. Well, we say the same thing about traditional publishing, too, a lot of times. Oh, that's right? true. That's true. 100%. <laughs> Who is it for? Like, is it for you as an author or is it for an audience? Both, I mean, for whether traditional or self-publishing, I think that is right. the number It's one a lot question. of the same questions we ask ourselves. We look at projects, potential projects with uh, traditional publishers, too. We talked a lot about Gavin's um, book. What are you working on right now? Anything you can share? Um, on the book side, working on a couple of proposals. So I haven't I haven't worked on a cookbook proposal in a long time. So I'm sort of relearning how to do that and what proposals are like in 2023 versus I think the last one I wrote was 2013. I can't share 
anything more than than working on a couple. Yeah, that's mostly it for me in the publishing world. Sweet. Great. We'll have to stay tuned. Well, Nick, this was so fun to talk to you and pick your brain. And I feel like uh, there's a lot more that we will probably be pinging you with questions on like, well, what do you mean by this? And what do you mean by that? So thanks for sharing. Sure. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to Everything Cookbooks. Send us your questions or comments through our website, everythingcookbooks.com. You'll find more episodes on the website or you can catch new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Any book mentioned on the show can be found on our affiliate page, bookshop.org. Thanks as always to our editor, Abby Cirquitella. And until next time, keep on reading, writing, and cooking.